Welcome to church. Let me add my welcome to Sarah's and everyone else. You've had a collection of people up here today. You've had a, a treat. Good to be with you. Uh, love church. Uh, hope you've had a, a good week. I've had an interesting week. <laughs> it's full of challenges, but full of also amazing, great things that God's been doing. You can pray for me in this coming week. I'm speaking uh, Friday, Saturday, this coming weekend at Clan Gathering up in the Highlands, uh, which is really exciting. So uh, churches all across the Highlands are coming together. And myself and another are carrying the speaking. So you can pray praying for me uh, that God will use me to make an impact. I really do want to make an impact. I want God to be glorified in this great nation uh, that, that we, we live in. Uh, let's pray, then we're going to turn to the Bible. Where Sarah mentioned we're in this series. We're looking at the Psalms. And uh, we find that the, the, the collection of Psalms in the Bible really help us navigate through the, the highs and the lows of life. Uh, and, and it really does capture every emotion you can imagine facing. And so I pray that today's message will be helpful for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so good. God, you are so amazing. And God, thank you. As I stand here, I'm standing in your presence. And God, as, a, as we're here together as a church family, I pray that you would speak right into our hearts, no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're going through, you're a God who speaks and a God who loves us. Thank you for your book, the Bible, your word. I pray that it would speak right into our hearts today. And I pray, God, as we look at the subject of disappointment, I ask you, God, that those who are facing disappointment would find encouragement and strength and stamina to face disappointments in the future in Jesus' name. Help me to speak, help us to hear. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, disappointment is something that you all face. And disappointment comes in many forms. Some of you face disappointment because of a miscarriage. The, 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 the child you hoped for didn't come to be. Some of you face disappointment because of that bank loan that you'd applied for to get that business idea off the ground, that dream you had. It was declines and you feel your dreams have, you're disappointed, you feel your dreams have just died. Some of you are disappointed because of a relationship that, that didn't come to be. Some are disappointed um, because someone you trusted and really hoped would deliver kind of let you down when, when you most needed them. There are various reasons we're disappointed. What, what, at the root of all disappointment is expectation. Because what happens is, is this, we expect something and then we're let down. So we expect something from other people. And they, they let us down and we feel disappointed. We expect something from maybe even ourselves. We, we expect a lot of ourselves and we let ourselves down. Or we expect something of God's and we perceive that he lets us down. And that's where disappointment comes from. I'm going to take you on a journey in a, in a psalm. It's quite a big psalm. But this psalm carries, I believe, some incredible, radical, surprising answers to the subject of disappointment, how we can navigate through disappointment and how God can accomplish incredible purposes in disappointment. So we're going to go into the psalm. It's, as you read the psalm with me, it's written by David. It was written about 1,000 years before Christ. And it was probably, it is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. New Testament, looking back, this is the most quoted psalm. And you'll see why as we go into it. Because the psalm isn't just about David and the disappointments he was facing. It's also incredibly a prophetic picture of Jesus as he was going through the crucifixion. So we're going to go through looking at disappointment in our lives. And we're going to look at disappointment that Jesus faced. And I want you to hang in there because I really believe there are answers that you need to hear today from the word of God. So Psalm 22. 
It says, for the director of music, to the tune of the dough of the morning. It's kind of like an Enya thing. A Psalm of David, verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day and but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are as enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm. I'm not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him if let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of, my womb, out of the mother's womb. You made me trust even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me. For trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will be eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and will turn to the Lord. All the families of nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Say, he has done it. So we're going to look at David's disappointment and our disappointment. And then we're going to look at Jesus' disappointment, because the Psalm's referring about Jesus as well. You saw it there. So first of all, David's disappointment, or our, our disappointment. Let's, let's look at how this, I mean, it, it, you would agree, it's, it, it expresses in a kind of gut-wrenching way some of the disappointment that you and I face in life to an extreme. Verse one, it says, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, and you do not answer. By night, and I find no rest. I don't know if you've ever been in the place where you're crying out something like that. I certainly have. You perceive God's let you go. Okay, but the thing is, David knew God's promises. We know God's promises. David knew, for example, Deuteronomy 31 verse 6. He will never leave you or forsake you. David knew that, right? You know that. And yet sometimes you're in a situation in life where you don't feel that. You ever been in a situation in life, or maybe you are just now, where it seems like your circumstances are contradicting your theology, right? You know theologically, you have a conviction, God's never going to leave me. And yet in your circumstance, you, you feel, God, you've left me. Or maybe you're going through a circumstance and you have this deep conviction in your heart that God views the situation this way, and yet your situation seems to contradict your conviction and your theology. Who's been there? Right? We've been there. I, I, I remember way back uh, when I, I was in my teens, my, my dad had just turned 65. He retired from uh, being an art teacher. And uh, he, having been fit and healthy, he developed a lung disease which resulted in him basically becoming incredibly ill for the next two years. And over that two-year period, he lost all his weight. He was, you know, kind of all skinny, uh, thin like a skeleton. He lost all his weight. He was bedridden. He was unable to get himself out of bed and have the energy to do things. And he was literally dying on his bed. It got to the point where we thought he's not going to last much longer. And at that point, he read a verse that talked about God's healing power. And he went and called on the elders of the church that he went to, the little church of Scotland. They came, they anointed him with oil, they prayed over him. And God miraculously healed my dad. The next morning, he woke up, he had breath in his lungs. And he, he, started, he had an appetite and he started eating. He put all his weight back on again, not in a day. But over the next month, he put all his weight back on again. Fit and healthy. Today, dad is just about to turn 89 years old. He hasn't got a trace of that disease. God is a good God. That's my theology. I believe in a God who heals. You can read the Bible and conclude that God doesn't want you healed. And yet, just after dad's healing, mum fell sick. Really sick. By the time it was discovered, they said there's no hope. So we prayed and we stood by faith and we trusted. And we did all the things we did when dad got miraculously healed. And yet, the healing didn't come. Mum died. I've been in a situation where my circumstances contradicted my theology. And here was David and that exact disappointment comes because we, we perceive God's let us down. We perceive it. Verse four. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. The New American Standard Translation translates that they were not disappointed. In you they trusted and they were not disappointed. Say Disappointed truth disappointment never comes from God God appoints he never disappoints in fact in the New Testament in Hebrews it says you can in fact it's Romans Romans chapter 10 you can read it with me uh, let's bring it up on the screen Romans chapter 10 verse 11 1 2 3 whoever believes in him will not be disappointed say it again whoever believes in him will not be disappointed God never disappoints, and God can never be a disappointment. 
you may be going through something that makes you feel disappointed with God. But I can assure you, God is never a disappointment. And a situation, you may go through it, but I assure you, if you can keep trusting and believing God, no matter what, no matter what's trying to get you to quit on God's, no matter what's trying to get you to stop persevering in your faith, if you can just keep trusting, I can assure you, you will come to a point where you will look back and say, God, you weren't a disappointment. I promise you. God promises it in his words that those who trust in him will never be disappointed. It says in verse six, but I am a worm, I'm not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by all people. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say, let the Lord rescue him, let him deliver him since he delights in him. And this is what's happening here in the psalm, and again, you guys have probably experienced this yourself, your disappointment goes from being with God to being with yourself. You start concluding, well, the problem must be with me. And so you start kind of thinking, well, I'm a, I'm a joke. I'm a worm. I'm a nothing. I'm, who am I? <coughs> and that's what's happened in the psalm. And the problem is this, two problems. On one hand, you've got the silence of God. And on the other hand, you've got the loudness of the accusers or the loudness of your circumstances shouting at you. You see, it says that, that here they are. You're, you're asking yourself the question, you know, I, I trust in God. Surely, because I trust in God, you're not going to abandon me, are you? You'll surely deliver me. And you're, you're wondering because it seems like he's silent. It seems like your circumstances are shouting the opposite. The circumstances are shouting, come on, you trust in God. Where's your God? Where's, where's this deliverance? And, and that's what your accusers are saying to you as well. And that's exactly what's going on in this man's soul. Verse 19. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Notice, what's he not done here? All the way through, he's not given up on God. Right the way through this psalm, you see him going through probably one of the deepest moments of despair. We don't know what situation it was referring to in David's life. But here's what you find. He's still believing, still trusting, still praying. He's praying through his disappointments. In fact, in the first 10 verses, five times it mentions trust. He's just trusting. He's trusting. He said, they trusted you delivered them. I'm trusting. You know, from, from my mother's womb, I've been trusting. He's mentioning trust all the way through. And he's still in this situation where it seems like God's let him down. And yet he's still trusting. That's incredibly powerful. C.S. Lewis, I don't know if you've, any of you have read his screw tape letters, but it's, it's an unusual book. It's written as if it's a kind of hypothetical situation describing a conversation between the devil and a demon. Describing how uh, the, he, the devil's giving the demon's advice on how to undermine a believer's faith. And in this particular interaction between the devil and a demon, the devil says to a demon, and I quote, uh, do not be deceived. Our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human being looks around upon a universe in which every trace of God has seemed to have vanished. And he asks, why have I been forsaken? And yet he still obeys. And according to the devil, to the demon, our, everything's in jeopardy at that moment. Because if you can be a believer who in the face of seeming silence of God, in the face of apparent distance of God, you can still believe, you can still walk. That's incredibly powerful. That's what will bring you through. Keep praying through disappointment. Keep praying, keep trusting. I said earlier that our disappointments come from our expectations. 
We expect a lot of people and they let us down so we're disappointed. We expect a lot of ourselves or we expect a lot of God. So what would be a realistic expectation for us to have? Sometimes we have the wrong expectations. Well, here's what Jesus gives you as an expectation of this world. I love this. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble. Say amen. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Say amen. Amen. Psalm 34, verse 19. Listen to this. Many hardships and perplexing circumstances confront the righteous. But, how many people are glad for their but? (laughs) But, the Lord rescues him from them all. So this is realistic. This is, this is your realistic expectation in life. I'm going to face many, what does it say? Hardships and perplexing circumstances. Oh yeah. You can, I guarantee you will not be disappointed. These verses are true. In this world, you will have trouble. You, you can count on it. You can really believe for that. It's going to happen. Jesus gives you this expectation. You will not be disappointed. And you see what happens is people, and, the, and what they're not realizing is this world's broken. The re, remember thorns and thistles, right? Back in Genesis 3, as soon as sin came into this world, instead of producing fruit, this world's, everything in this world works against us. Thorns and thistles, constantly working against us to try and, that, that's why there's trouble, that's why there's disappointment, that's why you're going to face perplexing circumstances. Life will never just, life will never measure up to your expectation, never, not once. People won't, you even won't. But I can assure you, God always will. God is true in the middle of it. I remember when we started the church, uh, we, we kicked off, me and Ange, in, in our living room uh, at Haymarket. And for the first year, we had about five people coming along. And it took us about 10 years to get to 30 people. Now, see, when you arrive in a city to plant a church, just a wee tip, we didn't arrive with a vision like, I tell you what, this is our vision. After four years, we are going to have... 30, yes, three zero people in our church. You watch, you just wait and see. I mean, that wasn't, our, that wasn't our vision, okay? You arrive in a city thinking, oh, there's going to be hundreds, it's going to be huge, it's going to be... You don't arrive with a vision for 30, okay? It, it, it didn't rise to our expectations from the word go. It was, it was tough and challenging. I, I remember in the early stages, we, we just managed to get out of our living room. There was maybe 12, 15 people. Angie had a summer uh, job and her bosses were actually, they actually came to church that Sunday. So we thought, wow, this is a big moment. We've got visitors. And there was another guy who was visiting as well. Anyway, worship was happening. It wasn't going very well. I was leading it. Thank the Lord for uh, worship team and others who can actually lead worship, stepping in. And I was leading the worship. And in the middle of the worship, this is no joke, over to my side here, one of the guys, this, this, not, not Angie's boss, but the, the other visitor that was there, stood up randomly in the middle of the worship and says, I, I really feel compelled. I need to confess to you all my sexual sins. And I thought, mate, you really don't. Just sit down. <laughs> Just sit down. I'm not joking. That's what he said in the middle of the worship. Don't anyone do that. Don't anyone do that. It was weird, right? And so often, me and Angie would leave those services thinking, man, if we weren't leading this thing, we wouldn't come. This is rubbish, this church. <laughs> uh, it was tough. I remember one Sunday evening before I went out to preach, we had an evening service. Again, the church was really small. We didn't even have a morning service. We just had a Sunday evening service. And I, I was about to go out and preach and I just pressed play in her answer machine and noticed there was a message for us. And it was from one of the ladies in the church who had been very much part of the church for a couple of years and was really a, kind of 
real backbone member of the church. And when you're small and when you're, you're really depending on precious people who carry responsibility. And then she just said, I've decided to leave the church. And I'm not telling you why. And I don't want you to get in touch with me. I want nothing more to do with this church. And I thought, boy. And then I had to somehow or another muster the emotional energy. It makes you feel weird. It makes you think, what on earth? What? I think, come on. And I had to muster some emotional energy to go and preach that night. I mean, it was just brutal. So when we, when we started the church, that's what it was like. So when we train church planters to plant churches, this is what I, as we're starting preparing for new locations, this is how I train the church planters. This is what to expect. This is how rubbish it is. This is how people will let you down. These are the sort of things that will happen to you. And I could tell you story. I could take this whole sermon telling you story after story of the kind of stuff that you will face. It's brutal, okay? So they go into it, right? I know exactly what I'm getting into. <laughs> and they're expecting. So what do you expect? So many people are in neutral or in reverse in life because of disappointment. Because they've expected something and they feel let down and they're in neutral. I, chatted, I was at a wedding just recently and I was chatting to a good friend who I haven't seen for years and years and he'd completely disconnected. He was very much part of church that I was in years ago in Glasgow but he's completely disconnected from church and he was telling me how he felt so let down by people, you know, the church should be a church family. You know, you'd expect in church people to really care for each other and you'd expect people to be looking out for you and if you struggle, they'll be there for you. And, you know, it's not, it shouldn't be cliquey and, and all this. And he was saying this and he said, and Peter, church just consistently let me down. So I've disconnected. I've still got my faith in God, but I don't go to church anymore. And I said to him, can I give you my pitch? And he said, okay, go on. And I said, nothing's changed and I don't think it will. But I still think you should go. I said, You'll, you go back to church and they will still let you down. This, this bunch of people who happen to be human beings like you and me, We'll let each other down. We, we want to be this great family, sure, but sometimes we won't be. Sometimes we're going to say things out of turn that we will regret and you'll hurt someone. I get it. But I still think you should go because there's something about that environment that transforms your life. There's something about committing to something that's imperfect where there is rough edges and it's even those rough edges help you become more like God as you don't quit, as you face them, as you walk through those tough times together. You know, I often say to people, if, if you haven't been offended at destiny, it's just because you haven't been around long enough. Uh, you, you will be offended in this church. I welcome church members, new church members today. You will be offended at this church. Prepare yourself for it. Have an expectation. It will happen. Uh, but when you feel disappointed by God, stay. When you feel disappointed by your spouse, stay. When you feel disappointed by a church, Stay. There's something incredibly powerful about people who just stayed. John 2, 42, Jesus said this, and I love this. He says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man because he himself knew what was in man. Jesus, it says he didn't entrust himself to people. The crowds of people who just wanted all his time and all his he just didn't trust himself to them because he knew what was in them. Jesus understood that I'm not going to put all my expectation in a human being. And for some of you, you need to learn a lesson. You see, 
Look around you just now. Look, look around the room. Look, look at the people in your row. Okay, how much do you trust them? Okay. <laughs> so you look across the room and think, okay, I trust them. Okay, out of 10, how much? Okay, seven out of 10, I'll give them. And I, oh no, that's a three out of 10 over there. And I, okay, they're a six out of 10. Okay, but here's, here's the secret. Don't trust them 10 out of 10. I'm serious, don't even trust yourself 10 out of 10. Okay, I don't trust me 10 out of 10. I think, well, why did I do that? Why am I talking to myself? So I, seriously, don't, don't trust. So you, you have these measures. You, can, you look around and think, okay, I'll trust them. Seven out of 10, uh, eight out of 10, four out of 10. But see, when it comes to God, 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10 for God. So here's the rule of thumb. Trust God. Love people. And that helps you through life. It helps you manage your disappointments because they will disappoint. Remember those two lumberjacks and they went into a forest and their job was to deforest this forest. And so they were going to work their way through the forest one tree at a time and remove them all. And they came to the, this tree and they noticed that there was a bird starting to set up nest in this tree. And they knew that if, they just, if, they, if the bird managed to set up nest, it would just be disappointed. It would just end up smashing its eggs and ruining its family. So they took the dull end of the axe and thudded the base of the tree. After several thuds, the bird flew off. But they noticed 100 yards later, it landed at another tree and started setting up nests there. So basically, they went around thudding the tree until eventually the bird flitted and flew to a cleft in the rock, rock, an overhang, a secure area in the rock. And they turned and said to each other, at last she's found a place where she'll be safe and secure, where her world won't come tumbling in around her. And you need to get to the place where you do not place your ultimate trust in temporary things or even people. You can place some trust in people, but measure it. But when it comes to God, you can give him 10 out of 10. Trust God, love people. Find your deep security in God. He will never disappoint or let you down. So the Psalm's about us. The Psalm speaks to us about our disappointments. And it's talking about David going through one of the darkest times in his life. But also the Psalm speaks incredibly about Jesus. Let's, let's look at it with, with Jesus' glasses on his disappointment. Verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. You ever wondered what was going through Jesus's minds when he was hanging on the cross? Mark 15 records what he said when he was on the cross. Mark 15, 33, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting the psalm that we're reading, Psalm 22. Now, in Jesus' day, they didn't have numbers associated to the psalms. Like we call it Psalm 22. So I say, turn to Psalm 22. We all know where we're going. But in Jesus' day, there wasn't numbers associated to the psalms. So the way you identified a psalm was by quoting the first line of the psalm. So Jesus was not only crying out the reality of what he was experiencing, he was also pointing people to a psalm that would make sense of all that they were seeing in front of them, even though it seemed so chaotic. Jesus was pointing them, look at this psalm, it explains what I'm going through. That's what, partly what he was doing. So let's, with that in mind, let's go through the psalm and let's see how it explains what was going on on the cross. I'll, t- I'll just skip through the verses. Verse 7. 
All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Yet let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. That was how they mocked. And that's exactly how they mocked Jesus. Again, let me read you an eyewitness account. Matthew chapter 27. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saves others, they said. But he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. And we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults at him. It's exactly what said in the psalm would happen to Jesus. It's exactly what happened by the mockers and by the religious leaders. Verse 15 in the psalm. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. Did you see the pronoun swap in that verse? It goes from speaking about them to you. Did you see that? It talks about them, bulls and lions, describing the mockers that are like bulls and like lions, animals with no conscience. But then he flips it and says, you, what does it say? You laid me in the dust of death. Wow. You, who's he speaking to? He's This is Jesus speaking to God the Father. You laid me in the dust of death. And it answers for us a huge question. Who killed Jesus? We understand, okay, the Romans killed Jesus. They crucified him after all. Or you could argue, well, well, it was the Jews that killed Jesus. It was out of jealousy that they called for his crucifixion. I guess you could argue, we killed Jesus. It was our sin and the sin of the world that caused the crucifixion to happen. But in an incredible way, this verse reveals you, God the Father, laid him in the dust of death. God, the Father, instigated the death of his only son. Almost like Abraham sacrificing Isaac, the Father this time followed through. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 53 verse 5. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For the transgression of my people he was punished. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. God the Father caused God the Son to suffer. In a moment in history, the wrath and the anger of God against sin was poured out on the Son instead of on you and I. God's own wrath against sin was consumed within himself as he poured out on his Son rather than pouring out on you and I. That's radical. That's love. Go back to the psalm, verse 16. They pierced my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare at me and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and they cast lots from my garment. Let me remind you, this was written 1,000 years BC before Christ. And yet it's accurately describing a crucifixion scene, the piercing of the hands and the feet, the gambling of the garments, which was commonplace at the foot of a cross. It was describing a crucifixion scene. There was not crucifixions in David's day. 
1000 BC, crucifixion hadn't even been invented. The first recorded crucifixions in history were in the 7th century BC in Athens where they crucified pirates. But in David's day, 300 years before that point, crucifixion hadn't even been invented. And yet, it's predicted with great accuracy here. I mean, that, that would be like the Vikings a thousand years ago describing the iPhone, right? Yeah, you're going to have this thing and you can swish to open. And I mean, seriously? That would be like a thousand years ago them saying, all right, there's going to come a, they'll be describing the assassination of, uh, you know, John F. Kennedy. You know, they're going to use a weapon called a gun. I know it hasn't been invented yet, but they will have this thing. And he'll be, dry, he'll be in a car, or I have to, there's no such thing as a car yet, but that will be such a thing as a car. And it will be in a place called Dallas, Texas. Okay, that, I know that doesn't even exist yet. Okay, so, and that's exactly what was taking place here. A thousand years before Christ, David was describing with great detail, and it's not just here, folks, right through the Old Testament, there's pictures by the hundreds of the crucifixion of Jesus before it ever happens. And the point is this. On the cross, it was all planned. John 19, it says, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, they divided them up into four shares, one for each of them. When the un- with the undergarment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said, so they decided by lot who would get it. They cast lots for his garments. And what was Jesus saying when he was signposting to Psalm 22? What was he saying? He was saying to his disciples in the moment of the greatest disappointment, he's saying, I know this looks random. I know this looks chaotic. I know this looks like everything's out of control. I know it looks like, where is God? I know it looks like that. But I'm telling you, look at this Sam, and you will see that even in the midst of this great disappointment, God is out working an incredible purpose. And God would say to you, as you're going through the greatest disappointments in your life, you need to understand there is a perspective you need to get that God is, can outwork, God can take even the worst of situations where it seems like the devil and wicked people are having the best and taking advantage and it seems like you're at the mercy of circumstances but do not fear because there is a God who's in control and he's doing great things and he can turn it for an incredible purpose. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's great news. That should be great news to you when you're facing great disappointments. See, a thousand years before, it was planned. Jesus saying, look, it was all written about. In fact, before the creation of the world, God had prepared a plan to deal with the sin of the world even before it happened. Incredible. Nothing takes God by surprise. Your disappointment, you need to know, disappointed disciples, there is a plan. God is working a plan. In the midst of chaos, God can turn it all for the good. That's good news. So let's go back to verse one because Jesus wasn't just pointing people to a psalm. He was actually saying verse one. Mark 15. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole lands until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lamach sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David, he was quoting David, Psalm 22. David, in the hard times of his life, he perceived God had forsaken him. But when Jesus was on the cross, he wasn't perceiving God had forsaken him. He was experiencing God forsaking him. He was literally God forsaken on the cross. The external anguish of a cross. I cannot imagine the pain of the cross. 
I cannot imagine what it would be like to have nails through your wrists, uh, your back whipped, crown of thorns on your head, and then hit with sticks on your head. I can't imagine what it would be like to go through that kind of mocking and to go through those kind of trials and tribulations that Jesus went through. I can't imagine that. None of us can. It is an anguish like none of us, hopefully, God willing, will ever have to face. However, I believe that the internal anguish that Jesus faced in the cross was so much greater than even the external agonies of the cross. And that's what this verse is saying. So what was going on? What was going on behind the scenes in the cross? Okay, we believe that God is Trinity. We believe he's eternally always has been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God's three persons in perfect unity, in perfect relationship, always has been, always will be. And yet, what was taking place in the cross was a, a separation, whatever that meant. A separation happens between the Father and the Son. The Son experienced what it was to be forsaken by the Father who he had been in perfect unison with and unity with since eternity past. This was a dark moment. In fact, the darkness uh, was symbolized and signified, the physical darkness signified the spiritual darkness of that moment. Uh, that, that, that darkness, that six hours to the ninth, that's three hours of darkness that happened around the cross. By the way, it wasn't just recorded by the eyewitnesses in the, in the Gospels and the Bible. It was also recorded in secular records of the day. Let me read you a quote from the exultant writings of Julius Africanus. I mean, if you're going to write a book, call it something like that, right? The exultant writings of Drew Barton, you know, right? I mean, just everyone want to read it. Well, it's not just like the average writings, it's the exalt. Anyway, he says this, Phygelon records at the time of Tiberius Caesar at the full moon, there was a full eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour till the ninth at the time of the Jewish Passover. And it was recorded in history. It was an event that was notable and they wrote it down. But the physical darkness was symbolic of the behind the scenes spiritual darkness of that hour. That in the darkest moment on planet earth, Christ experienced being forsaken from his own father, who he had been in unity with since eternity past. Why the separation? Why did that happen? Two things you need to understand. Sin and holiness. You see, there was no sin in Jesus, but our sin was on Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sin was placed on Christ, all of our sin. Every thought you've thought that's corrupt, every agenda you've had, not just the things you've done, but also the things you've thought. And not just the things you've done, but also the things you should have done that you didn't do. The moments you should have spoken up, but you didn't speak up. All sins, sins of omission and the sins of commission, all our sins, every sin, the ones you're aware of, the ones you're not aware of, the ones you've done, but also every sin you'll ever commit of every human being who's ever lived was placed on one man, the perfect, sinless son of God who took the sin of the world upon him. And as he took the sin of the world upon him, there was a darkness. And as he took the sin of the world upon him, there was a forsakenness took place. Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what was taking place. And the reason I know that was what was taking place, that the inner anguish was so great that you, 
ask yourself, well, when did the blood start flowing? The first drip of blood wasn't shed when a nail went through his wrist or a whip hit his back. It happened in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was agreeing before the Father, not my will but yours. I accept that I'm going to do this for you. And the Bible says his sweat became like blood. And that takes place when blood vessels near the surface burst because of the intensity of the internal anguish a human being is going through. And Jesus started shedding blood, not when human beings assaulted him, but when the sin of the world was starting to be laid upon him and as he experienced the fury of God against sin. It's incredible what God went through for you. Incredible. Sin separates us from God. It says, because God's so holy, Habakkuk 1.13, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil. You cannot look on wickedness. And the reason Christ experienced forsakenness from the Father was because the sin of the world was placed on him and the Father had to look away. That's a dark moment. In the fourth century in Korea, there's a story of a father who had two sons. The older son grew up and became the chief justice of the land. And his younger, younger brother uh, became a, a notorious bandit in the area, causing all sorts of murders and crimes and terrible things to happen. Even though they lived very different lives, the older brother loved the younger brother and often appealed to the younger brother to leave his life of crime. Eventually, one day, the younger brother was arrested and brought before the chief justice of the land, his own brother. And as he stood before his own brother, the people in the courtroom assumed that because he was his brother, he would be let off and there wouldn't be a conviction. And yet the older brother pronounced sentence. He had to be executed for the crimes he'd committed because that's what law required. It was a dreadful moment. And the day of the execution arrived, the older brother went to visit his younger brother and said to him, now, now what's happened is we swap places. And the younger, the younger brother assumes, okay, when we swap places, he'll go to the execution and they'll recognize it's the older brother, the chief justice, and they'll let him off with it. So he agreed to the swap. On the day of the execution, the younger brother, who should have been executed, sat on the hillside to watch what was going to take place. And to his incredible horror, the older brother was brought out and was executed. As he saw it happening, he ran down the hill saying, no, this is a mistake. I am the one who should be executed. And the soldiers replied, there is no longer any sentence outstanding for anyone of that name. And the truth about what Jesus did on the cross is this. He was punished, so you wouldn't need to be. He was condemned so that you'll never be condemned if you trust him. He was perfect and sinless and yet he became sin so we become righteous in him. He was treated the way I and you should have been treated so that we could be treated before the Father the way he should have been treated. The only time recorded in the New Testament when Jesus speaking to God refers to him as God rather than Father. The only time he doesn't call him Father, the only time he calls him directly God is on this cross as he's taking the sin of the world. He couldn't call him Father. He called him God. So that in Christ, you can call him Father for all eternity. 
He was forsaken so that you would never be forsaken. He was separated for a moment so that you could be eternally united, inseparably united with God. That's what happened on the cross. That's really good news. Now verse 22 is a turning point in the psalm. This is how it starts getting happy now. It says in verse 22, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. You descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised the scorn, the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. See, it looked like God hadn't answered. But sometimes you just need a little bit of time to pass, and then you're going to look back and think, oh, I'm not disappointed. It looks at the time of disappointment that he's not answered. And yet, in retrospect, you see, he did answer. And we understand at the cross it looked like disappointment, but three days later, Look like resurrection. No disappointment. Risen from the dead. Here's the truth. You will never have a testimony of God's unfaithfulness. You only have testimonies of God's faithfulness. You know, you don't hear testimonies of God's unfaithfulness. They don't exist. Because he is true. He is good all the time. He is completely faithful and true. No matter what's going on, it's not him. You can trust him. If God can take the darkest day on planet earth and turn it for the salvation of the world, then God can take your darkest day and turn it around for a great purpose to accomplish exactly the opposite of its design against you. God can use it to bless others and to change the world. That's great news. Verse 25, from you comes the theme of my praise. In the great assembly, before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever that all the ends of the earth will remember and will turn to the Lord. That's a good promise. All the ends of the earth will remember and will turn to the Lord, Edinburgh. All families of the nation will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves from death. Here it's saying that this great victory that was taking place in the cross, this moment of forsakenness will be an answer that will be talked about for, by all nations. This incredible moment of being forsaken, this piercing, this crucifixion, this death and resurrection will become an answer that will be celebrated by all peoples. Not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Not just the poor, but also the rich. It will be celebrated by all people in all generations because this is what God has done. That's good news. And he says, and it says, those who cannot keep themselves alive, they will celebrate. Fact, every human being will die. Fact, Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. What's the worst that can happen to you? You die? It's all right. You will live even though you die. That's true. That's incredibly good news. Even a moment that seems like disappointment, you will look back and say, I'm alive. He is faithful. Verse 30. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to people yet unborn, he has done it. You know, as surely as the crucifixion was accurately described a thousand years before it ever happens, as surely as that was predicted with great detail 
so surely these words of prophecy will be fulfilled in our generation and in the time to come. That the ends of the earth will turn. That multitudes will come to know God. This is our expectation. You're in this verse. I don't know if you saw yourself. It says, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about him. It will be declared to people yet unborn. My guess is you weren't born 2,000 years ago. And yet you're spoken about. You're one of the people in this psalm. You're one of those who heard this news about the cross and the resurrection. You put your trust in God. You're one of those future generations. And it says, posterity will serve him. Future generations uh, will be told about the Lord. You know, 2020 vision is all about that, you know, the idea of launching four new locations in our city in the next few years. That's all about, okay, how can we declare to this city, he has done it. How can we let the city know? How can we spread out and, and launch locations for the glory of God and for the sake of getting the gospel out to precious human beings in the city? That's why we do what we're doing. We are those who are serving him and announcing to this generation, he's done it. He has done it. It's interesting, the last thing Jesus said on the cross before breathing his last, in John 19, 30, Jesus said, it is finished. And when he said it is finished, he was meaning the suffering is complete. He was meaning the Father's will has been done. He was meaning it is finished. 350 Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled. He was saying the old covenant is now fulfilled. He was saying, Satan is judged. Death is defeated. Sting has been taken out of death. Forgiveness is now available. The salvation package is complete. Forgiveness for sinners is now available. It is finished. That's what he was saying on the cross. You see, religion says do. Do more, do this, then God will accept Christianity says, done. It's all done. It's finished. He has done it. Jesus Christ did it all on the cross. No matter what disappointment you face, you need to see a great picture that in the darkest moment of humanity, God worked a great plan. And no matter what you're going through, trust God. Keep walking with him. Even if it seems like you're walking uh, through tough, tough times, you wonder if he, why is God silent? You need to understand that God is the God who works great purposes even in the midst of dark times. Let's hear it for Jesus Christ. So Lord, we say thank you that you have done it. Thank you, Jesus. You said it is finished and you died and the curtain of the temple was torn in two and then the third day you resurrected. Thank you, you're alive now to prove it's finished. Thank you, you're alive to give us the inheritance you achieved for us on the cross, to give us that abundant life that you promised through your terrible death. Thank you, Jesus Christ. We honor you, we admire you. All our hope is in you. We don't hope in us, we hope in you. And we say thank you. It's all made available to us for free at your expense. God, thank you. Our gain because of your pain. Jesus, we honor you, we admire you. God, we do face disappointments. Many are facing disappointment. Even this week have faced disappointments. But thank you, you're the God who does not disappoint. Thank you, you're the God who, as we trust in you, we will not be disappointed so I pray for precious people here today God some in the midst of disappointment are thinking of quitting and I ask God let them just stay hold grounds keep
keep trusting. Some have faced disappointment with God, so they think. And I pray God give them this deep resilience just to stand, to stay, to keep walking. God, some face disappointment with the church. And God, I pray that they would just stand, stay, keep walking. Jesus Christ, thank you for facing the ultimate disappointment. A moment of being forsaken so that through you, we can be eternally united, inseparably united with God. So each one of you take a moment to pray your own response to God. While people are praying, if you're here today and you know that you're not yet connected with God, Jesus has done it all for you. And that's what I'm announcing to you today. I'm letting you know he has done it. But just because he's done it doesn't mean you get it. For it to become yours, what Jesus has done, you've got to place your life in his hands. You've got to put your trust in him. I mean, not just a little bit. I mean, totally put your trust in Jesus who died and rose again. So, will you do that? For some of you, it's, it's now time for you to do that. And if that's you today and you're saying, Peter, today I want to put my trust in Jesus. I believe he's the son of God. I believe he died for me and rose again. And I don't want to live another day without God in my life. Then you pray this prayer with me just now. Just one line at a time under your breath. Repeat this after me. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you for your love for me. Thank you 2,000 years ago. You were willing to pay the ultimate price so I could know God. I could be forgiven and I could have a new and eternal life. Today, I trust in you. I give my life to you. I believe you rose from the dead victorious. I believe you're alive right now. Jesus, be Lord of my life from this day forward. Take first place. Thanks for hearing my prayer. If you prayed that prayer, if you made that decision today, then I'd love to pray for you, just wherever you are. If you prayed that prayer, could you just identify yourself to me, whether you're in the balcony, the cafe, or in the the main floor here. Just pop your hand up and say, Peter, today I prayed that prayer. Today I trust in Jesus. I'll just wait for you to put your hand up, and then I'll pray for you as as you've done that. If that's you today, pop your hand up. Nice and clear so I can see it. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Keep your hand up so I can see it anyone else before I pray is there anyone else and that's the decision you're making today thank you God for my dear friend here today and for anyone else who prayed the prayer but didn't put their hand out I pray I pray for this guy and for anyone else today who made this decision for Jesus I pray right now they will know the acceptance of God based on Jesus the forgiveness of God based on Jesus, the gift of righteousness and eternal life, all because of Jesus. I pray let them know the incredible acceptance of God from this day forward and walk this life with you from now on in Jesus' name. Thank you for hearing us, God. 
You'll never disappoint me. In Jesus' name. Amen.